The work of this church in the world is realized through the generous financial support of all who call this place home. Along with the gifts and time and talent, ours is a shared ministry. You have a role to play here. Church membership is open to all. For more information, go to uusf.org. In April this year, the New York Times ran an article. Its title was, There's a name for the blah you're feeling. It's called languishing. In the article, Adam Grant wrote about this idea that in between these two poles in mental health, one being on the one end flourishing, this place of well-being marked by a strong sense of meaning and mattering, that at the other end has depression, a place most often marked by a sense of despondency or even feelings of worthlessness, that between these two, there is a middle place. It's a place that isn't often named or even described. It's undiagnosed, he says, but widely prevalent. It's the place called languishing. Languishing, he writes, is the neglected middle child of mental health. It's the void between flourishing and depression, the absence of well-being. You don't have symptoms of mental illness, but you're not the picture of mental health either. You're not functioning at full capacity. Languishing dulls your motivation. It disrupts your ability to focus, and it triples the odds that you'll cut back on work. The term was coined by a sociologist, he goes on to say, named Corey Keyes, who was struck that many people who weren't depressed weren't thriving. His research suggests that people most likely to experience major depression and anxiety disorders in the next decade aren't the ones with those symptoms today. They're the people who are languishing right now. And new evidence from pandemic healthcare workers in Italy, Grant goes on to say, shows that those who were languishing in the spring of 2020 were three times more likely than their peers to be diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder. Part of the danger, he says, is that when you're languishing, you might not notice a dwindling of delight or dulling of drive. You don't catch yourself slipping slowly into solitude. You're indifferent to your indifference, he writes. When you can't see your own suffering, you don't seek help or even do much to help yourself. That description seemed to me like a perfect description for what most of us have had to live in in pandemic times. For most of us, I think, pandemic forced us into this perennial waiting mode, not being able to plan, not being able to travel, or do a lot of the things that broke us out of normal patterns of living, all the things that we rely on for a reset or a wake-up call. Well, in the face of the loss of all of that, many of us fell into something that sounds and looks a lot like this languishing place, not depressed, but not thriving either, slowly sinking 
into the long haul symptoms of life. Life in between flourishing and its opposite. Grant says that one thing that helps us get out of this state as suboptimal as it clearly is, is simply to be able to see it and to name it. So there, you and I, we now have the first hand hold out. But how else to get out of it when we find ourselves in it? One thing Grant suggested was that the antidote might be in the pursuit of something that researchers have called flow. I bet you know flow, even if you haven't heard the word. Flow is what we feel in those times and places when we get lost in something. Positive psych psychologist Mihai Csikszentmihalyi who coined the term, describes flow as a state of complete immersion in an activity. Often it happens, or most notably sometimes, in some creative act or passion or practicing of those things. Athletes often describe it when they're playing their sport, these miraculous, deeply enjoyable times when they are in it, but not thinking about it, just merged with the playing of it. And painters and musicians describe the same thing, especially in moments of creative processes. But so do people experience it when they're cooking or they're doing any craft or activity that they practice regularly and can fall into. And so too do those who regularly meditate or chant or perform Tai Chi or any number of practices. Increasingly, maybe, as we practice them. I fall into it sometimes when I'm studying or writing. There's something about that state of flow. If you can think about the times you fall into it, that is deeply satisfying in the deepest sense. In an interview with Wired Magazine, Csikszentmihalyi described the experience thusly, the experience thusly. He says, the ego falls away. Time flies. Every action, movement, or thought flows inevitably from the previous one like playing jazz. Your whole being is involved and you are using your skills to the utmost. One person interviewed said of flow words that sound almost religious. You forget yourself. You feel part of something larger. Trying to understand what flow is or how we get there, Cheek sent me high, broke the experience down into 10 factors that often are present, though they don't all have to be in a single moment of flow. And they include things like practicing you something you enjoy, like we've discussed, or often when you have set a certain goal, one that's attainable, but a stretch, a challenge. 
times when somewhere in the process there is this momentary loss of self that we heard described, this self-transcending feeling or even emerging with what you are doing. So that time does cease to register. That even that you lose your embodied sense of self, lose sense of yourself as in a body. And all of this, all of this and what happens in that space feeds us. It's interesting to me that in a life that is flourishing, at the flourishing part of that spectrum of our health, that what ideally is happening are regular moments of this flow, this experience of deep focus, and how, by contrast, in depression, what we often experience is that it's hard to focus for periods of time, that we feel perennially distracted and fractured, and how that's also what Grant identifies is one of the things we see in languishing, this beginning of a distracted, unfocused quality to our lives. In this corner of the Northern California globe, and maybe for this era, the word focus, when it comes up for many of us, conjures up the work and the life mantras of entrepreneur Steve Jobs. It's a way of working, his way of working, that's often credited, at least in part, for his incredible success. In Walter Isaacson's biography of Steve Jobs, written with cooperation by Jobs himself, Steve Jobs credits some of that focus on focus to one of the earliest partners he had in Apple, his mentor, a father figure for him, Mike Marcula. Marcula was 33 when Jobs and he met and had already cashed out of his professional life from his work with Intel and was semi-retired, but then leapt back into the fray with Jobs and Wozniak to relaunch Apple as a company. And Marcula wrote most of the initial business plan for Apple, but also, more intriguing, this one-page marketing philosophy for the company. It was a philosophy that had three points. First, that Apple would know the customer's needs, maybe even more than they knew them themselves. Third, that its packaging and marketing would speak clearly and intentionally and set the tone for the impression that Apple products would make. And in the middle was this idea of focus. Marcula impressed upon Jobs that, quote, in order to do a good job at those things we decide to do, we must eliminate all the unimportant opportunities. Jobs would step into that call to focus in ways that are now legend, cutting significant lines of research and development and even established businesses sometimes to focus on one or two models or directions the radical simplification and seeming risk he seemed to feel more comfortable with than, with than most of throwing one's eggs into one or two baskets that 
had the power of turning up the heat on some teams and pulling the rug out from under others. But Jobs, he'd also do it in his personal life. Maybe he was already prone to it in a life of extreme diets and fierce meditative practices that were his. He seemed to like to focus, maybe existentially be drawn to it. And in him, we see the benefits and we see some of the fallouts of that way of being. Hanging, as is said, concentrates the mind. Deadlines mixed with existential fear, boy, they force hard choices. Marginalize also big parts of our life and our work. But they do also seem to make possible some level of greatness. And all of this is so obvious when we're looking at the world of business or sports or even artistic endeavors, but it's also true of the spiritual life. In autobiographies of gurus and yogis that I have read over the years, stories of the lives of people like Sri Sri Ravi Shankar, not the musician, but a famous guru in India, and Pramahansa Yogananda of the famous autobiography of a yogi. There is also a pattern for how they credit their single-minded commitment to spiritual practices of meditation or other to certain remarkable abilities that they acquired. How the focused practice provides for them mysterious access to new ways of knowing and new ways of seeing and even new ways of connecting to people or new physical abilities even. Years ago, I studied with a Reiki master who told the story of the founder of Reiki. Reiki, as many of you probably know, is, is a form of energy work where the practitioner, often holding their hands over a person's body, though it can also be done remotely, reorders energy and invites healing. And the story as I heard it was that the founder, Mikao Osui, a lay monk from Japan who discovered this power, found it as a side effect of his committed meditative and spiritual practices. He almost stumbled on the fact that he had this healing gift that had developed. And it was never his goal and it was never supposed to be ours in our cultivation of spiritual practices. But it was this capacity that opened up when a focus on spiritual practices was maintained successfully over a lifetime. Focus here too, apparently, can make all kinds of remarkable things possible. The reading that I opened with as our text today is also in a way a similar call to focus. At least that's how I hear it. That elder's advice to the child or youth where they're passing on wisdom, but a framing around it that's a reminder to keep what they hear or what's important to them right in front, as close and binding as you can. 
Don't let these words escape from your sight, the elder says. Keep them in your heart, for they are life to those who find them, and healing to all flesh. Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flows the spring of life. Keep straight the path of your feet, and all your ways will then be sure. That passage echoes for me other texts through time, but most immediately the Buddha's advice about right action and right thought and his invitation to a lifetime of mindfulness and discipline of mind and spirit and body. And behind it all, behind that call, the wisdom and compassion and peace that he knows and invites us to invite into our own lives is possible only with that kind of focus and commitment. In these ways of action, if these ways of action are pure, the Buddha said, in words that are both challenging and an invitation, if these ways of action are pure, one can make progress on the path of the wise. The truth is we all know the power of focus. I think we know it even in the most mundane of ways. We know that our multitasking is almost always less effective in producing any remarkable results than our quiet, focused time. We know that distracted attention from a loved one is deeply less satisfying that actually it can even sometimes weaken our connection to another, so painful and diminishing it can be to feel half-heartedly loved and seen. We know what fractured and diminished focus and attention looks like and how it feels to live that way. In fact, we have just had 18 months, I feel, of a lot more of a life prone to that. And so it does feel like maybe it's time to engineer a way out of that, if, particularly if you also feel yourself there. Even as the pandemic continues to play itself out around us. And it's also just a great time to take this spiritual project seriously, right? I mean, it's almost September. It's this time of pencil sharpeners and new notebooks and academic organizers. Those of us who were formed in a world of academic calendars, I think we'll always have branded on us a sense that this time of the year, more so than any other, maybe is the beginning of a new year. And so a great time to break free or try and maybe we begin then with the word focus. Maybe we just begin asking ourselves what is worthy of our focus that maybe has wandered out beyond our peripheral vision when we weren't paying attention. What, what calls to us for a clear and challenging goal 
What would the practices be that we could put in place to serve our way toward that goal? How would we carve out the time or build in some accountability? What, as Markula famously challenged his young mentees, what might we have to eliminate in order to make such focused attention and all it brings with it possible? Who might we disappoint? What habits do we have to be willing to break? And, and will we risk eggs in fewer baskets to see where this larger goal focused deep takes us? I won't outline all of the possibilities of what such goals might be. I just ask that you consider carving out time to undistractedly reflect, as I have been lately, on what is calling for our focused attention personally. Much that is life-giving, deeply satisfying and transforming is, after all, only possible when we focus. And the flow we can find ourselves in, in such focused work, losing ourselves in it, often lures languishing to the curb and opens the door to flourishing to come in and join us on the dance floor. What's calling for your devoted attention? May you lose yourself and find yourself there. So may it be. Mr. Dennis Allen Adams. Uh-oh. When they say your full name, it usually means one thing. I look up at Mr. Beamsterfer, realizing that I've been caught napping in my ninth grade history class yet again, and admit I didn't hear the question. Mr. Adams, you need to get your sleep at home and not in my class. Yes, sir, I squeak out, my ears turning bright red. How embarrassing to be admonished in this way. I thought I'd been sly about my secret slumbers, but apparently not. My classmates' laughter didn't help. My daydream about organizing a protest at my school against the Vietnam War faded away. My best friend Jason and I were already planning to skip school the next day and go up to Penn State and take part in a war moratorium event. With so many heavy real-world events, more often than not, my school lessons seemed unimportant. I was reminded of the mock turtle and griffin explaining to Alice in Wonderland that the reason they are called lessons is that they lessen day to day. I didn't think Mr. Beamsterfer would appreciate Mr. Carroll's knowledge. Jason and I were focused and active in two different Peace Coalition groups, and our latest project was a huge paper mache mock Mark 48 torpedo, which we would fill with food for the hungry and march over to the ROTC Ordnance Research Lab at Penn State, where this weapon of war was being developed. That event went really well. No one got hurt. There was often an uneasy truce between our peace groups and those like the SDS, Students for a Democratic Society, who advocated much more aggressive attacks on the university's buildings and staff. One major problem with my schooling was my knowledge that our history books 
were filled with BS and flat-out lies. Long before coming to that realization, I'd learned that school was just not for me. I had way too active an imagination to be calm, quiet, and focused. It may have helped had I only been aware before the eighth grade that I needed glasses. What a revelation that was when I got my new eyes and could actually see the blackboard and make notes. Everything became so sharply defined, I could finally focus, at least visually, if not internally. I had learned as early as six and a half years old that a life in the theater was the life for me. That's when I was put on stage in Anything Goes. It was a musical production set aboard an ocean liner, and I was actually encouraged to be a bratty kid in a socially unacceptable way. My big moment each night came when a ship's passenger pantomimed for me to take my wooden sword and poke another passenger who was asleep in a deck chair under a newspaper in his butt through the chair. Each night, I'd tiptoe up behind him and poke the chair under him, and this comedic character actor would explode up out of there and chase me yelling off stage. Talk about method acting. I mean, I knew it was coming every night, yet I still jumped every time and was scared to death as this lunatic chased me off stage. But then the most curious thing would happen. As we arrived backstage, this actor would drop the rage, ruffle my hair and say, good job, kid, and smile and walk away. I became aware of how important it was to focus on what you were doing, when and how, for one reality on stage, which was really make-believe, yet the second you got backstage, everything turned real again. Chatting quietly in the wings, the chorus girls would often buy me an ice cream cone and hold me on their laps. With such amazing mentors as these, it was easy for me to imagine a life in the theater and performing arts. That's how I learned to focus in my life. The work of this church in the world is realized through the generous financial support of all who call this place home. Along with the gifts and time and talent, ours is a shared ministry. You have a role to play here. Church membership is open to all. For more information, go to uusf.org.